The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast-paced. It's like a good two-minute drill. We are just boom, 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 right down the field. Opinionated. It's okay to admit the Red Sox didn't have much of a choice but to trade Mookie Betts. To the point. There's no better option for the Patriots than Camp. They have to re-sign him moving forward. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? It is day three. We are back. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. I'm all, yes, I'm worried. Three days in, the intro might have to get changed because I I now don't know what to make of Cam Newton and whether or not he should be the Patriots' long-term answer at quarterback. So I reserve judgment until after the Buffalo game, but the opening promo might have to get changed. So uh, we are back for day three, and I, I just want to take a second and thank everybody because the feedback has been great. The interaction has been great. The people who have reached out have been great. I went out and looked at our podcast numbers already for after the show, and they are way bigger than I expected. So I appreciate that you guys are listening, downloading, whether you're listening live or listening later or doing both in some capacity. I really appreciate you. You can find the full podcast every single day. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. And also just online at WDEVradio.com. We also put up our big interview every single day that we do at 545. We put that up separately as its own separate podcast. So, hey, you got the hour and 15-minute show, and you got the 10- to 12-minute interview. So you can listen to to either or there or both. So I appreciate you. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio, who you hear every single night on this station when we don't have live sports. 9 p.m. His show starts with Ian Fitzsimmons. He's going to join us today at 5:45. If you want to interact with the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. WDEV Radio Brady. And the show is always brought to you by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia is family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. Okay, let's start here. Analytics were guilty last night. Being too smart for your own good was guilty last night. When Kevin Cash took out Blake Snell, it was the wrong decision, and it may, not definitely, but it may have cost the Tampa Bay Rays Game 6 of the World Series. And it may not definitely, but it may have cost them a chance to win the first organization, the first organizational championship, the first title in organization history. But let's understand that can be true. Okay? It was the wrong mistake. Yesterday the Rays were too smart for their own good. They took Rays baseball to the nth extreme and it cost them dearly yesterday. That is true. But analytics and the quote nerds are not ruining sports. They are not bad for sports. They, like everything else, need to be used in moderation. Again, I get it. Blake Snell was dealing. He had nine strikeouts. He allowed two hits. The guys coming up in the order, the three guys in the order after Austin Barnes singled, 0 for 6 with six strikeouts against him. He was dealing. He should have been left in the game. He signed a $50 million with the, with the Rays. The team that doesn't pay anybody paid him because they recognize how good he is. He's won a Cy Young. He was their guy, the guy, the only guy that they pay. They should have left him in. And it, yes, the Dodgers told you that after the game, 
They told you after the game that, that Blake Snell being taken out of the game is all that they needed to get confidence going. Cody Bellinger said as much after the fact. I was shocked. Uh, we were kind of joking around. We were like, all right, way to get him out of there in the six like we planned. <laughs> but not like that. But, uh, yeah, and then we just kind of got re we rallied from there. And uh, Snell had his stuff today. He was gross. He was so, gross. yeah, I would say that it uplifted us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was the wrong choice to take Blake Snell out. But analytics, and again, the quote nerds, are not ruining sports, they're not ruining baseball, and they are not making sports worse. Let's understand this, okay? Let's understand that analytics and being smart has undeniably helped sports. First off, the Rays had the best, not the second best, not the third best, they had the best record in the American League. Better than the power-hitting Yankees, better than the better than the great Indians, greater than the up-and-coming White Sox. They had a better record than the power-hitting Twins, better than the Moneyball A's. Better, They had a better record than all of them, and light years better record than the Red Sox. So what they did this year has worked. Let's acknowledge that. The Rays and their organization are constantly poached because people want to build what they have. They are seen as the standard. The Rays... People want to replicate what they have built. Andrew Friedman, the guy who built the Dodgers team that just won the championship, he came from the Rays. Heim Bloom, the guy who's tasked with rebuilding the Red Sox, he's from the Rays too. People recognize the value in what the Rays do. Yes, you can be too smart for your own good in one singular moment, but overall, don't tell me that nerds, are ruining baseball. Don't tell me that nerds are ruining sports because these nerds, in quotes, and these Rays in particular, are seen as the gold standard so much so that other teams want their guys. They want their model, their methodology, their culture. The Rays and their smarts discovered Randy Arozarena, who, to be honest with you, I follow baseball extremely closely. I had never heard of Randy Arozarena until the playoffs started. I'm embarrassed to admit that. I had never heard of Randy Arozarena, and I would imagine that 90% of people hadn't either. The Rays smarts took a guy we'd never heard of and turned him into a guy who had 10 home runs in the postseason, and that is the most ever for one playoffs. Randy Arozarena had 10 home runs this postseason, the most ever for one playoffs, better than Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, A-Rod, doesn't matter. Willie Mays, Ken Griffey, Hall of Famers, doesn't matter. Randy Arozarena had 10 home runs. That's the most. The Rays and their smarts traded Chris Archer before he bottomed out and got Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows, who are foundational pieces for them. Smart people, quote, nerds, like Theo Epstein, broke the curse of the Bambino in Boston and then did it again and broke the curse of the Billy Goat in Chicago. Analytics, smart people, have built stars like Steph Curry and James Harden because they've shown the effectiveness of the three-point shot, okay? And the amount of millions of dollars that Steph Curry, James Harden, and countless other athletes have made because of analytics and because smart people saw value in them that wouldn't have been recognized in 1975 or 1985 or 1995, okay? Those smart people made those athletes millions of millions of dollars. Some of these athletes were built 
because of analytics and because of smart people. So I don't even think the athletes hate analytics like maybe we the fans sometimes do. Analytics, smart people, have shown us that the passing game is more efficient than the run, and it's paved the way for more fun football. It's paved the way for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to become a special offense because now they're passing it a bunch and we're able to see Mahomes a bunch and they fly down the field a bunch and they play faster than everybody else and other teams are trying to replicate that. Why? Because smart people decided that running the ball three yards in a, in a pile of dirt 45 times a game was not the most efficient way to run an offense. That is what analytics, that is what smart people have shown us. So again, you can blame the Rays last night in one singular moment and say they tried to outthink the room and they were wrong. And you'd be right. You would be right in that they were too smart for their own good yesterday. But all day long on social media last night and then today, I saw people talking about analytics as if it was the reason that sports was suffering. It's not. It's not. It has given us so much, okay? And by the way, just like analytics can go astray, the, quote, gut feeling can go astray too. Remember when the Seahawks threw the ball at the one-yard line? Gut feeling that that was the right thing to do? Interception. Lose the game. Everybody crushed them for it. Remember when Grady Little left Pedro Martinez in a little bit too long in 2003 and the Red Sox lose that game? and ultimately lose a chance to break the, the curse one year earlier, well, gut feeling, Grady Little, can go wrong too. So everything needs to be used in moderation. But if you're here to tell me that analytics is the only thing wrong with sports or the thing that's the most wrong with sports, then I tell you that you'd be wrong I t- because it's added a lot to a lot of players' careers, a lot of individual play, and a lot of things that we, the fan, have enjoyed as well. It's the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We're going to do this every single Wednesday at this time. So after my opening thoughts, we're going to come with, what am I thinking about? Midweek questions. What's on my mind? Midweek questions. Number one. Midweek question number one. Mookie Betts this told David Ortiz this as part of World Series coverage. He said... I thought I was going to be a Red Sox player for life. I'd like to know when he stopped thinking that. And I don't know that we'll ever get an answer to that because that alone, that quote that says, I thought I was going to be a Red Sox player for life, that doesn't do a whole lot for me. WEEI in Boston and some places picked it up and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mookie says he wanted to be a Red Sox player for life and the team screwed him. I don't take it that way. Look, and Betts, by the way, was special in the World Series. Third player. Third player all time. Four stolen bases, multiple home runs in a single World Series. Lenny Dykstra, Lou Brock, only other players to do that. Four steals, multiple home runs, single World Series. People made a big deal out of the comments. He said he would be a Red, he wanted to be a Red Sox player for life. I'm not. I'm sure he felt it very early in his career. You never go into a partnership thinking you're going to break up. You never go in thinking that it's going to end. And then as you're a young player, you come up with another group of young players, and you come up with a Jackie Bradley Jr. 
and a Xander Bogarts. And you grow through the minor leagues and you have this fantasy about just like back in high school where you're going to start out as seven-year-olds on the backfields and you're going to culminate it in a state championship as 17-year-olds. You just think that the guys you started with are eventually going to be the guys that you end with. And you look around and you see a David Ortiz and you see a Dustin Pedroia, guys who are long-tenured, decade-plus in the organization. And you fantasize, you think, that's going to be me. I have no doubt that Mookie Betts at one point thought that. But as you go through a couple years in the league, you see guys get traded. You see guys get cut. You see guys get hurt and they get discarded. And then you see what happened to high-priced guys like Hanley Ramirez and Pablo Sandoval and John Lackey and these guys that end up going away despite high-contract numbers. The team then takes you to arbitration, and you learn how the business works. So it doesn't surprise me that Mookie Betts at one point felt that way, but I don't believe that he felt that way this past offseason. I think he knew. It's a business. I have now seen too much that that doe-eyed look that I had as a 20-year-old when I got drafted and played in the minor leagues a few years and then came up with this group of players, that look was gone. That look was gone. He had seen too much of the business to think that that was going to be a reality. Let me get to a, another quick one. Number two. Number two, my question is, does Patriots defensive back Stephon Gilmore know something we don't know? Okay, Stephon Gilmore's house is now on the market in Boston. Tom Kern, NBC Sports Boston, had that. He's the reigning defensive player of the year. He's the best defensive player on the Patriots. He's the most important part of their defense. The team has been bad over the last couple of weeks, but I still think they got a shot if they can beat Buffalo. Gilmore's got his house on the market, and ironically enough, he's asking for offers to come in no later than Tuesday at 5 o'clock. Tuesday at 4 o'clock is the trade deadline. Does Stephon Gilmore know something that we don't know? Is he being prepared just in case? Or is he just looking to move to a different house in the same neighborhood? We don't know. As for what the Patriots could get for him, I think they could get a second-round pick, which would be from a contender, a low second-round pick in all likelihood. I want the Patriots to make the playoffs. I want Cam to turn it around. I want the Pats to make the playoffs. If they lose against Buffalo, I'm in favor of trading Stephon Gilmore. Even if they beat Buffalo... I'm in favor of listening to a trade for Stephon Gilmore if it's something that blows your socks off. Albert Breer, Monday morning quarterback, talked about Gilmore's availability. It wouldn't totally shock me if he were available over the next nine days. The question is what you're going to get back, and that's sort of the issue. I, I don't think you get a first-round pick back for him. It's probably more of maybe a second-round pick or a third-round pick and something else because he's 30 years old. And players that go for first-round picks, as we talked about during the pregame show, they're all 27 or younger. If I could get a second-round pick and I'm out of it, I'd do it. Gilmore's 30 years old, as he said. The secondary's the best part of my team. And look, if they're out of it this year, they're in a complete rebuild. They won't know who their quarterback is moving forward. They're going to be picking high in the draft. They're in a complete if – this, if this week – this is what's on the line. If they lose against Buffalo and they blow it up, they're in a complete rebuild and I won't need a good player like Stephon Gilmore moving forward. So I would trade them, take what I can get if it's something that can blow my socks off. Even if they win – if they lose, I'd trade them no matter what. If they win, I'd trade them only if something blew my socks off. But I, if it's a rebuild, I don't need them. I want them, but I don't need them. It's the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. 
We'll ask about the Patriots and the World Series with our next guest, Freddie Coleman, is going to join us. Longtime ESPN radio host, one of my favorite people in the business. We carry his show nightly, 9 p.m. You'll hear him tonight. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show of WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. One of the nicest guys in sports talk radio and one of the smartest. We thought the Patriots, that they're very good at keeping information from getting out. They're better than the FBI and the CIA. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN's Freddie Coleman on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. It is the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. As we continue on here in week one, a full week of new announcements about the show. and very excited to continue that theme right now and announce that joining us now is ESPN radio host Freddie Coleman. You can hear Freddie every single weeknight here starting at 9 p.m., Freddie and Fitzsimmons. Freddie's going to join us every single Wednesday at this time. Freddie, thank you for being with us, man. How are you? I'm good, Brady. And number one, I'm so glad you get a chance to get your shine on and have your show. I think that's going to be an effect that anybody out there listening to you. And number two, really honored to be part of your first week of, of a brand new show and being part of your first guest to get this rolling and rolling down that hill, my man. Well, Freddie, we love having you on, love having you be a part of the show. And you have a reputation as one of the nicest guys in sports talk radio. You're not labeled as the hot take king. I don't see you really get into it with other hosts or athletes or anything. Do you like the label as one of the nice guys at Sports Talk Radio? I really do because you have to be true to yourself. And there are plenty of people in our business that try to be something or someone else that are not. And I'm completely okay with that if you are able to live with that and do anything that's going to come with it. But no matter what people think of me or what they think of my opinion or what they think of my personality, you're always going to get 100% of me. And I think a big part of that is credibility. That's not to say that I'm going to be overly nice because when you have to have a little bite when it comes to something, you have to have the ability to do that. But I don't mind having that next to my name. I don't mind that people think of me in that way because that's not a sign of weakness or a sign that someone's going to back away. That's just who I am. And I revel in that all the time. And I'm proud that I've been able to put that out there and have that received by people in the 16 plus years I've been at ESPN Radio. Freddie, you've been doing nighttime radio for a long time at ESPN, and some people think, I think, around the industry that nighttime is not as good as morning drive or afternoon drive, but i got to also think that there's some real advantages presented to you by having a nighttime show. What is the benefit of it? One of the main benefits, Brady, is that you get a chance to talk about stuff that people are reacting to the next day, and we're already in the middle of it. For example, with all hell breaking loose with the Dodgers and the Rays in Game 6 of the World Series, by the time that everybody gets to the next day, we've already moved on to something else. So I always tell people that night radio is where the action is because more often than not, that's where everything is breaking or that's where everything is happening in that time slot. So I've never looked at that as a, a step down from morning drive or after new drive or any other daytime day part i know i have the ability to do those day parts if i was called upon but i really enjoy night radio i really enjoy everything about it and setting the stage for the next day not a lot of people want to do that i have the ability to do that that's something i've always wanted to do and i know i have the ability to do that each and every night with the infant sentence well, I have a lot of respect for nighttime radio because I, I don't think I'd be good at it. I, I need a plan. I need a structure. I got a seven-page notes, seven pages worth of notes in front of me here to get this show done. I got to know who's my guest and when. What am I talking about when? Nighttime radio, you don't know what the big story is going in. You don't know who you're talking to. It's just whoever gets pulled off the field or the court. I have a lot of respect for what you guys do. Well, I appreciate 
appreciate that, number one. And number two, there is some organization to the chaos that happens with nighttime radio. We never go into our radio show at 9 o'clock every night to 1 o'clock in the morning not having a game plan, especially when, for example, tonight, we know part of the game plan is still reacting what happened last night and the future going forward when it comes to Major League Baseball and also COVID-19 and why we saw that in Major League Baseball and why they can't get out of their own way. So there is some organization to the chaos, but when something happens and you have to go around that left turn, I like the fact that we're able to just adjust on the fly, get our thoughts together, have reactions to it, have our own opinions and takes on it, and we're able to go through there, go through that and make it work and make it seamless as best as possible. Yeah, and I want to get to the World Series. Um, Mookie Betts, he was unbelievable in the World Series, hit a couple of homers, made some great defensive plays, and Red Sox fans all over are really lamenting um, not having him anymore. So let me ask you this. Do you think Mookie Betts is the best player in baseball? Has he overtaken Mike Trout? No, and I'm a Mookie Betts fan, but I don't think there's any doubt that Mike Trout is the best player in Major League Baseball playing for the Angels and that Mookie Betts is clearly the second best player in Major League Baseball. And I clearly understand that because we've seen Mookie Betts be able to shine on the national stage not once but twice where he was able to help the Red Sox win the World Championship and he did the same thing to Los Angeles Dodgers not even 24 hours ago. So I get the whole being in the moment Brady situation where you say, oh, that means the best player in baseball. People don't realize how great Mike Trout is. Not good, but how great he is. But because he's not been able to do it in a playoff setting like Mookie Betts or make the playoffs like Mookie Betts has been able to, all of a sudden people are trying to bring that gap a lot closer involving Mookie Betts and also Mike Trout. But there's no doubt, there absolutely should be no doubt in anybody's mind that Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. Now I will say this, Mookie Betts may be the best clubhouse guy in baseball because you saw how the clubhouse was affected when he left Boston and how he raised that level with the Los Angeles Dodgers. That kind of having that ability to stir things up in the proper way and make plays while doing that. Only special people have the ability to do that. And we've seen that from Mookie Betts in two big markets with two the two established franchises and also doing that at a national level that he's been able to do with Boston first and now the Los Angeles Dodgers. Freddie Coleman, ESPN radio host with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. You know, it's a little bit easier, I think, to have this debate, Freddie, about who's better one-on-one in basketball, right? MJ LeBron, more easily comparable, a little easier with quarterbacks. Do you think that baseball is tougher to have a debate like this when we talk about Mookie and Trout? I think it's hard to have that debate in any sport when you're comparing errors, and here's why I say that, because everything is not equal. The way Michael Jordan dealt with the NBA in the 80s and 90s is not the same thing in the 2000s and 2010s when it comes to LeBron James and Kevin Durant. You can use the same you can use the same qualifications when it comes to Major League Baseball. Baseball players who are great in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we don't know how they would do with so much specialized pitching and more night baseball, more media attention, where you got to deal with that. More Sports talk radio didn't exist in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where you didn't have to hear about that kind of reaction from fans and sports talk hosts about what you did the night before, what you did the day of. So I never do that. So I always believe that it's hard to do that because so many things are definitely not even close to being the same. We don't know how Michael Jordan would have reacted in a Twitter age, and even he said it would have been just a nightmare for him having everybody in his business. By the same token, we don't know how LeBron James would have played in the rough and tumble 80s and 90s where he had to deal with the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers and the Detroit Pistons and the Cleveland Cavaliers and then the New York Knicks and the Miami Heat. We don't know that. So anytime I get the argument, it's nice to have reference points to use comparisons and try to make those comparisons. But I never do that with athletes in this day and age with each other. So that's not something I'm going to do with one era against another to see who was better than somebody else. 
Freddie, I want to get over to football now. The Patriots are in a really unfamiliar spot. They're two and four, um, fighting for their playoff lives, fighting for their season. And we said at the top, you're a nice guy. I like to think I'm a nice guy too. I have genuinely felt bad watching Cam Newton the last two weeks because Cam's played poorly, and I think he really, really cares. I like Cam. What have you felt when you watch Cam? I'm seeing the same thing that you're seeing because more than ever before, Bill Belichick and the Patriots have to realize you can't just out-scheme and out-coach people. You have to be able to have talent. you got to have talent that's going to help your quarterback, and that's not just on the offensive line. you got to be able to find wide receivers that can separate to give your quarterback a chance, especially in a percent decision offense, Brady, that the New England Patriots are. And I'm a Cam Newton fan as well. But he's never been that kind of precision passer. He's never been that that guy that's going to complete 65 to 70 percent of his passers. His greatest strength is always going to be being able to run the football. And then when you worry about that, then he can hit those one-on-one wide receivers where you're able to scheme those guys open. But in a precision offense like the Patriots, now it's incumbent upon Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick to find a way that you can marry the strength of Cam Newton with what you have to do best as an offense. But if you don't have those kind of playmakers and you don't have that running game to help out Cam Newton, then we're going to see those games where he's going to struggle like we saw last week against a very good San Francisco 49ers defense that knows how to get after the quarterback and play this scheme extremely well. So, Brady, I'm with you in terms of feeling sorry for Cam Newton, but I think he has to have better help, not just from the personnel around him, but now they have to do a really good job of coaching in terms of putting guys in the best position and getting the ball out of his hands quicker. This way he's not in those second and third and longs, and then the defense can really dictate the Cam Newton and the Patriots instead of the other way around. Yeah, and I'll get you out of here on this. Dale Arnold, WEEI radio host, he uh, was on ESPN Radio this morning, and he said that um, – he thinks not only should Cam be benched if he plays poorly this week, he thinks Cam should be cut by the Patriots if he plays poorly this week. Could you see a scenario where Cam actually gets cut? I can't see him being cut because there's a guy named Brian Hoyer on your team, and there's no way that you can have him as your backup quarterback if you're doing the Patriots. He has proven that he's a nice guy, but he can't play quarterback outside of a backup role or even a third-string role. So I can't see Cam Newton being cut by the New England Patriots. But I do think this is an audition game for Cam Newton, that you can't go out there and have three interceptions and complete less than 50 to 55% of your passes. But if you're the New England Patriots, what are you going to do to make sure that that's not going to be the case? Now, if you believe that Jared Stidham should be your guy, then you don't wait. This gambler is going to have a strong place, not just for this game, but maybe even the first half he's not playing well. And if that's going to be the case, you make that switch, and Cam Newton knows that as well. He said that earlier this week on WEEI in Boston. But if you're the New England Patriots, they're not just going to cut bait with him and have Brian Hoyer as your backup quarterback. That is not going to end well if that's going to become your scenario with the Patriots, no matter what Cam Newton does this Sunday for them. Well, Patriots and Buffalo certainly with a big game. We're your home with the Patriots beginning November 9th, and we're your home for Freddie and Fitzsimmons every single weeknight beginning at 9 p.m. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio going to join us every single Wednesday at 545 right here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM. Freddie, thank you. We look forward to hearing you tonight. Look forward to having you back again next week with us. My pleasure, brother Brady. Can't wait to do it again next week, and have a great week as well, my man. You too, Freddie. All right, I went way over. Let's get an update from CBS News. I'll give you my biggest takeaway next. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, everybody. 
Welcome back. It is the Brady Farka Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com going up until 7 o'clock. We do this every single weeknight. Thank you to Freddie Coleman of ESPN for joining us. He's going to join us every single Wednesday at 545. If you've ever missed Freddie, you got the full show podcast or just Freddie's portion, uh, just Freddie's interview online at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website. So Freddie is great. He truly is one of the best people in this business. And uh, I've met him personally a couple of times. My brother worked with him. So nothing but good things to say about Freddie and really pumped that he's going to be a part of this show. Um, every single day at 545, we do our big interview and then coming back at 605, the staff has done a great job. We've cut up some of the biggest takeaways from that interview and just kind of talking about life with Freddie. There was something he said that really resonated with me. So Freddie has been doing nighttime radio. Now, he's been at ESPN for 16 years, and he signed contract extensions, and he's never moved up. So as you've seen ESPN make moves and shuffle people in and out, and Mike Greenberg leaves, and Mike Golick leaves, and they bring in Trey Wingo, and then he's gone, and then Keyshawn Johnson's now there in the morning. Freddie's never taken that job, never been offered that job. And I think there are people that think that Freddie is not good enough to do a morning drive or afternoon drive, you know, a, a afternoon shift which is where, you know, quote, the big timers are. Freddie said this, and I thought it was really interesting, just kind of on life itself. I've never looked at that as a, a step down from morning drive or afternoon drive or any other daytime day part. I know I have the ability to do those day parts if I was called upon, but I really enjoy night radio. I really enjoy everything about it and setting the stage for the next day. Not a lot of people want to do that or have the ability to do that. That's something I've always wanted to do, and I know I have the ability to do that each and every night with Ian Fitzsimmons. Yeah, not a lot of people want to do it because they don't want the hours, right? Freddie's in there 9 p.m. until 1 a.m. A lot of people don't want to do that, so that instantly is looked at as some shift that nobody wants. And I think it's important just in life itself. If you're in your car or you're listening to this on your smart speaker or on your app or whatever, so much of life is spent usually trying to think about what's next. And we're all guilty of not living in the moment. We're all so busy. We're all so focused. We're all so fixated on the next big thing on what's happening tomorrow and how long do I have to put in here until I can get there. And Freddie doesn't do that. And we think about, you know, I think about athletes and I think about athletes who aren't able to stay in the present moment. They're athletes who are often disgruntled. They're athletes who are oftentimes never satisfied. And Kyrie Irving comes to mind. Kyrie Irving is a guy who just never seems to be happy. He was in Cleveland, wasn't happy at the beginning. They get LeBron, happy for a bit, not happy there. Then he comes to Boston, happy for a bit, and eh, not happy there. Then he's in Brooklyn with the Nets, and he's causing trouble there pretty quickly. Okay, Antonio Brown, he's got some other issues going on, but also just from a pure football standpoint, nothing seems to be good enough for him. Always on to the next thing. Pittsburgh, nope. Raiders, nope. Patriots, nope. Now Tampa, and I have major fears that he's going to um, – you know, just torpedo his time in Tampa. Also, people often are never satisfied with what they have and where they are. And I think about this in particular. The reason why it resonated with me is because this is my first week of this show. And a lot of the listeners know me from another frequency in this market. And I used to think when I first came to Burlington, I was in Albany, New York for two and a half years. And I was doing the usual young person radio thing, wasn't making a lot of money, did have a garbage shift. I was working 6 to 10 a.m., pressing one button 
talking to sports figures, but sports figures that by and large the average listener didn't care about. They were important to me because they were willing to talk to me, but by and large it was not people who were big names. And I kept thinking, okay, what do I have to do until I get a full-time show? What do I have to do until I get full-time period? What do I have to do until I get a Saturday morning show? Okay, my show's an hour now. How can I get it two hours? And then I eventually left and I came to Vermont. And my first thought was, how long do I need to put in here until I can leave? That was my first thought. It was I talked to my mentors in the business and they said, hey, man, you got to stay two years in Vermont. Two years in Vermont and then boom, you're out. And that was my mindset for a long time. Every day was a countdown until I was able to get out. And as time wore on, I realized, well, number one, I really like it here. I really, really like this place in terms of just living, working, playing. I like Vermont. It makes me happy. makes my girlfriend happy. We're good here. And I had other offers, and I don't talk about this a lot because I just think that it sounds arrogant when you talk about things you've been offered, but I had other offers in, quote, bigger places, and some of them didn't work out for various reasons, but um, I think what Freddie says about just appreciating where you are and not looking at being in a place as a downstep from somewhere else, Freddie's like, hey, nighttime radio for me, that's good. That's what I want. It's not a downstep from morning drive or afternoon drive. And where it comes back to for me again is that I am here at WDEV. I'm here in Vermont and I am pumped. Yes, somewhere out there, there was a quote, bigger job offer for me. And I never took it. It didn't work out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm happy to be here. And I'm at the point in my career where I'm done searching for what's next. And I'm done just climbing and trying to ascend. And I'm just happy. And I'm happy to be here. And I look at this as a perfect spot for me right now. And it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's a new challenge in a lot of different ways. And I'm just I'm just happy. So when Freddie talks about being happy with where he is, that resonated with me personally. So uh, Freddie Coleman talking a little life. So Freddie's going to join us again every single Wednesday at 545. Now to a more sports-centric takeaway. We were talking about Mookie Betts. And I asked him a question. I said, do you think Mookie Betts is better than Mike Trout now? And he said no. But he said something else about Mookie that I thought was fascinating. Listen here. Because so many things are definitely not even close to being the same. We don't know how Michael Jordan would have reacted. in a. That's not it. Wrong one. Here we go. Now, I will say this. Mookie Betts may be the best clubhouse guy in baseball because you saw how the clubhouse was affected when he left Boston and how he raised that level with the Los Angeles Dodgers. That kind of having that ability to stir things up in a proper way and make plays while doing that, only special people have the ability to do that. And we've seen that from Mookie Betts in two big markets with two the two established franchises and also doing that at a national level that he's been able to do with Boston first and now the Los Angeles Dodgers. So Freddie says that Mookie Betts might be the best clubhouse person in baseball. And he says that you can see the value added in the clubhouse in Los Angeles and they now taken away value from the Red Sox clubhouse. And... It really got me thinking as he was saying that. We really didn't give Mookie Betts a whole lot of credit for what went on in Boston, right? 2018, they had a special clubhouse. and They had a lot of good people, veteran people, fun people, and they were playing well, right? So it all worked out well. Chris Sale, good in the clubhouse. David Price was better in the clubhouse that year. He wasn't a distraction. Xander Bogarts is fun. J.D. Martinez came in. Alex Cora was good. Young, youthful exuberance of a Rafael Devers. And then Mookie, everything was kind of good there. 
we Mookie was very quiet, so we never associated the quote good clubhouse with Mookie Betts. Maybe we should have. And I don't know that Mookie being there in 2018 was was the number one best thing about that clubhouse. Conversely, I don't know that Mookie Betts being gone in 2020 was the worst thing about the clubhouse. But that clubhouse lost a lot of veteran leadership this year. I'm not quite willing to give Mookie all the credit in either way. There was a lot of stability in 2018. In 2020, Chris Sale's gone, David Price is gone, Mookie's gone, and then Eduardo Rodriguez, who's now a veteran, gets coronavirus, and he's hurt. Craig Kimbrell's gone. So a lot of the stable pieces, real, and Cora's gone, all that was really left was Devers, who's probably not quite ready for a leadership role yet. Even Pedroia wasn't around the team right now. And Bogarts was left. And Jackie Bradley. So there just wasn't... I think Mookie's great in the clubhouse, and the Dodgers teammates love him, right? And they've said they loved him, and they thought he was the missing piece. But I never thought that he was that great leader for the Red Sox, and Freddie Coleman has me wondering if I need to go back and reevaluate that. I just thought that in 2018... So many good, rock-solid pieces were in place. Mookie didn't have to be an outspoken leader. It was just all the veterans there holding people accountable, and that's what allowed them to succeed on the field. And then this year, I just associated poor play and kind of general dysfunctionality with the pandemic, Cora gone, Mookie gone, Sale hurt, Price traded, Kimbrell gone, I just thought it was all of it. So Mookie, I think, is great in the clubhouse. I don't know that I'm willing to go to the point that Freddie was going to, that he's the best clubhouse guy in baseball. And I don't know that you can point to his absence in Boston and say that that is what's wrong with the Red Sox in 2020. But do love Freddie, 545 every single Wednesday. If you want to get in on that, if you want to reach out to me, you can get in on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. So after the big takeaways on Wednesday, and I promise you by next week, some of this is going to become second nature. I won't have to explain and kind of hold the audience's hand through what we're doing here, but because the show is going to be fast moving and you're going to see these different segments repeat themselves every single day um, of the week. So every Wednesday after the big takeaway, we'll get to what's called know your enemy. And during football season, it specifically is geared towards the Patriots and getting our first look at their week, their next week's opponent. We're over the 49ers loss, hopefully, for our own sanity. Now we got to start getting ready for the Bills. So it is time for Know Your Enemy. It's time for Know Your Enemy. All right, the Buffalo Bills come in at 5-2. and two. They're coming off just an 18-point output against the Jets, but they did win. Bills defensively, we think of them as being really good. Sean McDermott's ahead is a, is a defensive-minded coach. They're middle of the pack this year. They're middle of the pack in kind of everything, okay? Middle of the pack in yards per game, middle of the pack in points per game allowed. You know, they allow 360 yards a game, 25-ish points a game. My early impression on this is that the Patriots' legacy is on the line, and the Bills have a chance and a motivated chance to, one, seize control. I think the Bills are going to be incredibly motivated. They can seize control of the division, and they can fully break the Patriots. That is enough to, I think, give the Bills at home an unbelievable early advantage going into this game. Patriots' legacy is on the line. Stephon Gilmore has his house on the market. Cam Newton's fighting for a job this year and maybe fighting for his career. 
Patriots are fighting for their divisional stranglehold. Bill Belichick is fighting for the idea that it was, you know, that it wasn't all Tom Brady. There's a lot of things up for grabs this week and a lot of things hanging in the balance for the Patriots. And the Bills have come in motivated with a chance to end all of it and put a final stamp on the Patriots dynasty. I think that's huge for them. But my gut tells me the Patriots win, and I don't know why. Because nothing that I've seen in the last three weeks shows me the Patriots are capable of going on the road and beating a competent football team. Nevertheless, a team that we think is the best team in the division right now. I think all I can do, all I'm doing, is going based on history here. Josh Allen has been statistically worse against the Patriots than everybody else he plays. He doesn't run as well against them. He doesn't throw as well against them. He doesn't beat man coverage where the Patriots have great defensive backs. And I can't unsee that they only scored 18 points against the Jets. The Jets are winless. They're the only winless team in the NFL. I can't unsee that they not only did they only score 18 points, they didn't even score a touchdown. Six field goals. I, I don't know. I can't quit the Patriots. I don't know that they could figure this out in a week. But I can't quit them against the Bills. Bill Belichick has beaten the Bills 35 times in his career. That is the most, number one, tied with Don Shula. The most wins ever by one coach against one opponent. He always beats the Bills. It's the first time since 2012 that the Bills are taking on the Patriots where the Bills have a better record. The first time since 2012. History tells me the Patriots own the Bills. History tells me Belichick owns the Bills. And history tells me that Josh Allen doesn't play as good against the Patriots. I don't know why I'm letting history dictate how I feel, but I am. My gut tells me it's a low-scoring game because the Patriots aren't capable of scoring a lot of points. They just don't have the horses. But if they can hold on to the ball, which has been their bugaboo the last couple of weeks, if they can hold on to the ball, they can beat Buffalo. Buffalo is minus one in the turnover battle this year. They don't do a great job of protecting it. They'll give it away. Josh Allen has given it away historically against the Patriots. They will gift wrap something for New England. The question is, will New England gift wrap it right back to them and then gift wrap it to them again and again and again as they have the last couple of weeks? This game is the difference between a playoff push and a total rebuild. There is no middle ground for me here. A win, you are in the conversation for the playoffs. You are in the conversation for the division still, even at 3-4. and four. If you lose, everything is over. And they may not tell you it. They may not show you it. But it's a total rebuild. If they lose this game, they could trade everybody. They could trade nobody. But either way, if they lose, it's a rebuild. A win would keep the momentum moving to at least with a point where I'm not ready to jump off the ship yet. My gut tells me they win. I don't know why. They're not better than the Bills in many ways at all. Okay? They're a little bit better probably on, you know, they're a little bit better on defense. They're definitely better probably on the secondary as a whole, but not by much. There's not a whole lot the Patriots do much much better than the Bills. They shouldn't win this game. They're on the road. They've played awful. They've lost three straight. History tells me they're going to. I can't quit the Patriots. I don't know. I have no idea if I'm right, if I'm brilliant, if I'm crazy, or if I'm just the last man on the island. 
But my gut tells me early on that given Josh Allen's propensity to play worse against the Patriots and given their ability or their willingness to turn the football over and not turn you over as much, if the Patriots come out and they play well, then they're going to win. If they play competently, they got a chance to win. So that's Know Your Enemy. We'll do another Know Your Enemy segment tomorrow. We'll tell you a little bit more about the matchup, who you should focus on. It's the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I spoke with Doug Flutie yesterday. We taped our podcast together. I got some new stuff from Doug, some new takeaways. Our daily dose of Doug Flutie is coming up next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. So Brady does a podcast with former Patriots quarterback Doug Flutie. Doug is a lot more famous than Brady. Flutie flushed, throws it down, caught by Boston College. I don't believe it. Doug is a lot smarter than Brady. So much in football is the guys surrounding you. Your success is dependent on the guys on the field and that team. So let's listen to Doug. It's your daily dose of Doug on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. It is time for the Daily Dose of Doug Flutie. Doug and I were back in the lab yesterday, so to speak, recording a couple of podcasts that will come. One of them came out this week. One will come out on Friday. So on the one that came out today, it was recapping the 49ers loss, and then one that will come out Friday is prepping for the Bills game. If you want to find the full podcast, you can. It's called the Believe in Patriots podcast, Believe, B-L-E-A-V. So Doug played for the Patriots on two occasions, Heisman Trophy winner, CFL Hall of Famer. So he and I talk a couple times a week, and every day I bring you the Daily Dose of Doug. So we were trying to figure out the best ways to fix the Patriots offense. And the Patriots offense has been garbage, right? It's scored 12 points or less in each of the last three games. Okay, They scored 10 against Kansas City, 12 against Denver, 6 against San Francisco. So they can't score with anybody at the moment. The idea keeps coming back to me that the Patriots should go no huddle. The Patriots should run a no huddle offense. Not exclusively, but they should go up-tempo a lot. What is the benefit of going no huddle? Well, number one, it simply tires out the defense, right? It tires out the defense. It wears on you. And as the Patriots have offensive line issues right now, a tired defensive front would mean less pressure on Cam Newton. And less pressure on Cam Newton would be better for Cam Newton right now who's struggling. People away from Cam Newton allowing him to throw would be better for him. That's number one. Two, it keeps your defense from substituting, so it keeps tired players on the field and just maybe has wrong keeps wrong personnel groups on the field. And now you can create mismatches and create advantages, and that is good for the offense, and that is good for Cam Newton. What else is good for Cam Newton? That's where Flutie comes in. Here's what he says about the value of no huddle in addition to what I just said. It, it limits that thinking time and gets you out of your head. When, when you have to do things on the fly, when, when you see teams go into a two-minute draw and it's kind of spastic at times or just in yeah. a hurry-up situation, you just become that raw athlete again and just start playing. That's what Cam Newton needs right there. So, yes, tires out the defense, keeps bad, keeps different personnel groups on the field. It allows Cam to just be an athlete again. That's what he needs because Cam's telling you I'm overthinking. Well, what is he overthinking about? 
He's over. Sure, we're all living in complicated times. I'm sure he's got. He had coronavirus. He's not with his family. That's on his mind. He's battling for his career. He's battling for his starting job and a contract. That's on his mind. But then on the field, new teammates, new terminology, new playbook, new head coach, new offensive coordinator. Now the defense has film on me, and now I've got to read the safety. I got to look at the DB. I got to look off the linebacker. Oh, this guy's spying me. If you go to a no huddle and it becomes everything is quick, it's just you're playing in the backyard again. It makes it easier for him. Less reads, less dissection, less anticipation of the defense, more just playing. He doesn't have time to. To, to wallow. You know, the 40 seconds in the play clock, he doesn't have time to wallow. He doesn't have time to wallow in the huddle. He doesn't have time to overthink and get dejected and get in his own head. Get there, get the ball, go. Rhythm passes, rhythm run game, five yards, six yards, 12 yards, and then boom, there's a play action and there's a 40-yard shot. That is what Cam Newton can do. That is what the Patriots should do. The Patriots need to put Cam Newton now in a situation to be successful. They need to put him in a situation where he can get confidence because right now he has none. And this is a guy who everybody thought was an arrogant showboater. And right now he's completely the opposite. Right now Cam Newton has no confidence. And you see it in his body language. You see it in his hesitation. And Flutie talked about what happens, what's going through your mind when you have that hesitation and when you're doubting yourself. And when you're when you're indecisive, when you're unsure of what you're seeing, uh, you're a fraction late with the ball. You're inaccurate with the ball because you're not committing to a throw. When you're throwing a ball up a seam, you have to look a safety off, know you're moving the guy, and that window's going to be there. And you turn and you just snap that throw and anticipate and put it in that window. The anticipation is gone when you start doubting yourself. The anticipation. The footwork, the accuracy all start to go because you can't wait and see it and then pull the trigger. That again plays into what we just said. Take all that stuff away. Take away the worry about this and that. Take the worry away about, hey, I'm at the, I'm in the huddle. Now I'm at the line and now they're getting set. Now I'm going to wait 15 seconds and, oh, boy, now i got to slide protection. Now i got to um, – audible the offensive line. I got new offensive linemen. Do they know what's going on? You're taking away a lot of the thinking and therefore a lot of the overthinking and you're allowing Cam to just play. Cam is an athlete. He is athletic. He can Cam Newton can complete passes. Okay, it doesn't look like it the last couple of weeks. Cam Newton can complete passes. Get in rhythm, get in tempo, and Cam Newton maybe more so than any other quarterback in the league feeds off energy and with no energy in the crowd no energy coming from the crowd he's got to get energy from somewhere okay Russell Wilson can play at a low heart rate Cam Newton needs to play at an elevated heart rate at an elevated internal speed he gets juice from that what quicker way to get the juice going than let's get to the line quick seven yards let's get to the line quick five yards. Let's get to the line quick, 20 yards. Let's get the run game in. Boom. Let's get in the line again. Now we'll huddle up and then we'll go out and we'll do it again. Okay. The Patriots don't need to look like Chip Kelly's old offense with the Eagles or with Oregon, but they do need to be creative and put Cam Newton in a position to be successful. And the no huddle 
is 100%, 100% away for them to do it because churning up clock and going three and out and watching Cam battle his, his inner mind right now, that's not working. What can work, get to the line, go, take away all the guesswork, and just play ball. Just play ball. Cam Newton won a Heisman Trophy. He won an MVP. He's gone to a Super Bowl. He's played on the biggest stage against the best, and he has won. He's certainly capable of completing a seven-yard out. You just got to spurn it. You've got to bring it out of him. The no huddle is a good way to do that. The other thing that Cam needs to do, as I continue on with Flutie here, he needs to learn when to give up on a play. He needs to learn when to bail on a play that's clearly not going to work because you have seen him try to do too much at times, right? We saw him play against, I think it was Denver, where he stepped up in the pocket. Oh, no, he had the play against Denver where he threw the screen pass that clearly wasn't going to work. It got batted down. He threw a pass where he stepped up last week against San Francisco. There really wasn't anything there. He's just trying to do too much. Flutie talked about the value of giving up on a play. You want to make every play work. And that is such, there's an art in knowing when to give up on a play. You know, especially if you talk scrambling quarterbacks that, that just try to make a play out of everything. And I did it. I throw more than my share of terrible interceptions because I just didn't want to give up on a play. And there's something, take the thing, throw it in the ground and it's lined back up and, and, you know, it, it situationally sometimes you know, I can understand the end of the game, last drive, and but if it's not third or fourth down, and you don't have to absolutely make the play, you got to be smart. You've got to be smart. Cam wants to do so much. He wants to be Superman. Okay, his old touchdown celebration. He's done it this year too. But his super his Superman touchdown celebration. That is who he thinks he is. That is who he wants to be. He is trying to prove that. And it has come with an adverse result and an adverse consequence sometime. Okay, He wants to be great, and he wants to work in New England that he just hasn't quite figured out yet when to, when to bail on something. He wants to justify the Patriots' belief in him. He wants to justify the belief in himself. That is one of the greatest strengths of Tom Brady. That is one of the biggest differences right now between Brady and Cam. You've seen Brady, oh, screen pass isn't there, I'm going to throw it into the ground. Oh, this isn't there, I'm going to throw it into the second row of the stands. This isn't there, I'm just going to plop it up and throw it at somebody's feet. It didn't look pretty. Some people thought Brady bailed too early on things, but he wasn't going to create the turnover. And the difference, I've maintained this. The Patriots, because of their lack of talent, they wouldn't be exponentially better with Tom Brady. What is better with Brady than Cam is that Brady knows when to bail on a play so that he doesn't hurt the team. And Cam is trying to be super Cam so much and trying to justify everything, his belief in himself and the team's belief in him, that he just hasn't figured out when is a good time to go for it and when is a good time to cut bait. It's the Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We do it every day. Time for Crazy Twitter Takes. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The, the internet. internet. It's time for Crazy Twitter Takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm 
taking crazy pills. All right, this one comes from Matthew Ross, radio host TSN 690 in Montreal. Good guy, love having him on, great guest, but today he's in the uh, he's in the crazy Twitter takes category. He says, may Mookie Betts immediately winning the World Series serve as a perennial reminder to John Henry, Heim Bloom, and others in the Red Sox organization that they threw away their legacy in a blunderous decision of epic proportions. Hashtag Kurt. Curse of the Betsbino. Curse of the Betsbino. Deep breath. Deep breath, Red Sox Nation. I understand you're mad about this all. I understand that Mookie Betts is a great player who's no longer with the Red Sox. And I understand that Mookie Betts now is a great player who just won a World Series with the Dodgers. I get it. But to say that the Red Sox brass has ruined their legacy, has thrown it away because of this, that is a drastic overreaction. John Henry helped bring the Red Sox thus far four World Series championships. You talk about the curse of the Betsbino. He helped break the curse of the Bambino. And that was the most important curse of all. And that was the thing that needed to end. 86 years of frustration was oh, Don't be spoiled by the last 15 years of greatness, last 16 years of greatness. The curse of the Bambino was hanging over this organization like the plague. And John Henry, when he assumed ownership in the early 2000s, helped put the pieces together to break that curse. He wrote check after check to keep fan favorites like David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia. He kept writing checks even when it didn't work to bring in Daisuke Matsuzaka and assume Josh Beckett and assume uh, Carl Crawford. He was always He's always been willing to try. He hired, he hired and elevated Theo Epstein and brought the staff together who won the 04 World Series and broke that curse. He had the people in place who drafted Mookie Betts, the guy you're so mad about getting rid of. The, guy who, the guys who drafted Jackie Bradley and Andrew Benintendi and Rafael Devers. Okay? He, John Henry and his team have done a lot for the Boston Red Sox. Their legacy is perfectly intact. You win in 04... That would have cemented. He would have never had to buy a drink in Boston on his own if he had just won in 04 and gone in last place every year since. But he won three more times. I understand it's painful to see Mookie Betts go, but let's recognize this. There's really not anything the team could have done. Hey, the team was going to be bad this year always. Maybe not this bad, right? Not last place bad, but. The Red Sox were never going to finish above Tampa and above the Yankees. It wasn't going to happen. Okay, I think in 162 games with healthy players, they finished above Baltimore and possibly Toronto, but not definitely. Okay, The team was always going to be bad. It was made worse by Sale being hurt and Erod getting coronavirus, but they were always going to be worse, at least than Tampa and the Yankees. They weren't contenders. Bloom knew that. At the very least, they were probably going to have to trade them at the trade deadline anyways. The damage, by the way, on Heim Bloom, the damage to the Mookie Betts relationship was done long before Heim Bloom got there. It was a product of taking him to arbitration and lowballing him for years prior. So maybe John Henry had a hand in that. But to say that he threw away his legacy, that's that's a little harsh considering all that he has done. So that is why Matthew Ross, TSN 690 in Montreal, is our crazy Twitter take of the day. We do that. 
every single day right here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We'll get into what they're saying and then my closing thoughts. That's how we wrap up the show. That's coming up next on WDEV. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? The passing game was atrocious today. This passing game is in big-time trouble. They really said that? The Patriots, they're an average offense. If you cannot be explosive on offense, you cannot hang in the NFL. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, welcome back. Brady Farkas Show, WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Get to Who's Saying What. Carl Ravitch, ESPN Major League Baseball insider, talking about the idea that there are some people saying there should be an asterisk on this season because it was just 60 games and it wasn't a full season. Carl Ravitch says, no way. I thought the playoffs felt just like every other playoff. I thought the World Series, one of the things that never came up was a 60-game season. Never. Because you had the two best teams, and they're playing a best of seven, and you had the off days. It felt very much, obviously, without fans, but I never once looked at, and I, I won't personally look at the Dodgers World Series three years from now, ten years from now, three months from now, saying, yeah, but that was in a No, you won't look at it saying, yeah, but. Okay, the the title is legitimate. I think early on when we heard about all these contingencies, and we're talking like back in April, I think I thought maybe it would be a legitimate, and, and it's it's completely legitimate now. As I look back at it seven months later, completely legitimate. You look at what these players went through, playing in front of no fans, creating their own juice, their own energy, going through daily testing or, or week, you know, multi-week, you know, multi-times per week testing, being apart from their families, quarantining, not allowing to go out on the road, the massive and stringent protocols, the lonely and isolated nature even of the clubhouse where you couldn't have meetings and you couldn't do the things that you like to do in a clubhouse it was as mentally taxing or more in a 60 game season under these circumstances than it would be in 162 and baseball is the sport above all sports that tests your mental fortitude golf's up there also but baseball does it every day for a for for an eight month period by the time you go through spring training and then the regular season and the playoffs under normal circumstances baseball will test you like anything like nothing else and these players had to do maybe more of that mental toughness and go through more of that stuff this year than they would in normal year and what Ravage says is right, right? It should be noted. These were the two best teams. Okay, These were the two top teams. This wasn't some illegitimate team. This wasn't the Marlins who won. This wasn't the, uh, this wasn't the under 500 Astros who won. If the, if the Rays had won, if the Dodgers had won, if the Padres had won, if the Yankees had won, you would have viewed it as legitimate because over 162, those teams also would have had a really good chance to win the World Series. And that's what matters. Just like in the NBA, okay, when you were talking about the bubble. Well, the Lakers, they were the number one seed. So I think that the Lakers could have really won it in a, quote, you know, normal finish to the season also. If the Brooklyn Nets had won it, well, then I would have looked differently. If the Pelicans had made the playoffs and won it, I might have viewed it differently. But the number one seed in the NBA won it and the best team in baseball and Major League Baseball won it. It's absolutely legitimate, and I have zero problem saying it. We don't remember that the Spurs won a title in a lockout-shortened season in 99 or whatever against the Knicks. We don't remember that. I barely remembered it. 
the Dodgers, you'll never remember. If anything, you'll look back at this championship, and you might remember it, and you'll smile thinking about, dang, at least they played. At least they played, and at least they, you know, they played a, they played a season, they got through the playoffs, and the Dodgers won it under maybe tougher circumstances than we've ever seen before. Blake Snell, he was the guy on the short end of the analytical decision yesterday. Kevin Cash takes him out of the game as he's dominating in the sixth inning. Blake Snell, after the game, he would not go after his manager. He would not bash his manager for the decision. Instead, he stood by his manager, which I thought was uh, pretty classy. Here's what Snell had to say after the game. I don't really know what to say, you know. I just... uh... I want to win, and I want to win the World Series, and that's the goal. So for us to lose, it just sucks. I mean, I'm not going to question him. He's a hell of a manager, so I'm not going to question him. Uh, I'll voice my opinion, and, yeah, I can only look forward to, you know, the offseason, what I'm going to accomplish this offseason to get ready to, you know, be the best me I can be for, for next year. I like that Snell didn't go after his manager, and it's a really good way to bookend the season for Snell. I like that he acted this way. He's under contract for several more years. He's got to deal with cash still next year. He's got to deal with the Tampa media, his teammates for a long time to come. Good for him to step up and publicly say that he was okay and that he supports his manager. And remember, the year started with Blake Snell being the public enemy number one for fans. Remember he went on Twitch, the video game service on the internet, and basically said, the money he'd get and the risk that he'd take playing in a, in a baseball season during the coronavirus time basically wasn't worth it. And people crushed him. How dare you, you entitled, spoiled brat millionaire, tell us that you are taking the risk when us essential workers are going to work and we're putting ourselves at way more risk than you. How dare you? People hated Snell. They thought he was short-sighted. They thought he was arrogant. They thought he was another cocky and coddled athlete. And here he is, six months later, showing an adult attitude, a grown-up attitude, even though I'm sure he disagrees with Kevin Cash's decision, even though I'm sure he was furious and hurt by it, he came out and he said the right thing. And that's a maturity that he showed that a lot of people didn't think he had just six months ago. We'll get to our last one here, Dale Arnold, WEEI radio host in Boston. He was on ESPN Radio this morning. He said... Cam Newton plays bad, he may cut him entirely. Not just bench him, he may cut him entirely. I would make the quarterback change this weekend. Ah, uh, wow. I, I, wow, I would have Dale. done it this weekend. Bill Belichick is not. I understand he knows a hell of a lot more football than I do. But if he throws another stinker Sunday, yes. they get bounced by Buffalo yes. badly. Yes. I think not only do you have to make the quarterback change, but at that point you probably got to cut the guy because what's he going to do, be a clipboard holder on the sidelines? watching Jared Stidham play quarterback? There is no reason to cut Cam Newton. If you want to bench him if he plays bad, that's one thing. We'll have that debate. There's no reason for Cam Newton to be cut unless he wants to be cut. If Cam Newton asked for his release, maybe I would acquiesce. If he plays bad and you're going to bench him and he says, look, just cut me, maybe, given his veteran status, maybe I'd acquiesce to that. Okay, Brian Hoyer isn't a better option than Cam Newton. The team doesn't have, this isn't baseball. The team doesn't have some minor leaguer waiting in the wings here. So if you're left with Stidham and Hoyer, 
you know, you, you see teams investing in backups. That's why Nick Foles and Ryan Tannehill and Marcus Mariota and Kyle Allen. That's why all these guys get signed for, traded, you know, get signed, get traded for, and get signed to big money in some cases because the value of a backup quarterback is real. Brian Hoyer is not my backup quarterback moving forward. Camp should stay on the team, continue to refine his skill set to hit the market next year, continue to learn. Okay, we think proximity to Belichick and proximity to Josh McDaniels would be good for Cam Newton. If he wants to hit the off se- if he wants to hit the market next offseason, he's better off having still played football, been around football, and been in meeting rooms and learning more football and working on his technique than he is just being on his own, sitting on his couch and left to do his own thing. It would make more sense for Cam Newton unless you know to to sit with the Patriots than it would be to just be released. Unless he can go get a job somewhere else where he's going to play. If Dallas calls and says, hey, Andy Dalton's hurt, we'll make you our starter, well, then I would want to be released. But if if there's no starting opportunity for him, then his best chance at helping himself in the future is to remain on the Patriots. All right, let's get to closing uh, let's get to closing thoughts here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM, and FM. Closing thoughts. Closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. All right. We talked about Mookie Betts. We talked about the Red Sox. We talked about the Dodgers having Mookie. It's all great. Mike Trout is still the best player in baseball. Mike Trout is still the best player in baseball. I got a message from Travis and Milton on Twitter who says Mookie is 100% better than Trout now. The answer is no. Okay, Betts gets elevated because of his two rings, and that's great. What he's done in the playoffs is great. But stop holding the failures of Mike Trout's organization against him and remember how great he is. This isn't basketball, okay? Allen Iverson can take the early 2076ers to the championship series because he is that good. LeBron James can take the, you know, mid, you know, 2007-ish Cavaliers to the championship series because he is that good. You can't do that in baseball. You need a pitching staff and a bullpen and some guys to protect you in the lineup and guys that can play defense. And you need multiple minor leaguers waiting in the wings who can come and and elevate your team at the right time or can replace a guy who gets hurt and keep the train moving. You don't need that as much in other sports. You need a whole lot of help in baseball. You got 24 guys other than Mike Trout, plus the extra guys that are eventually going to be a part of the team. The Angels haven't had that stuff like the Red Sox had and like the Dodgers have for Mookie Betts right now. Mike Trout is the best player that I have ever really seen and gotten to appreciate. Ken Griffey, I think, in my mind, is the best player of all time, but I was a little too young to appreciate Griffey on a night-in, night-out basis like I can appreciate Trout. He's the most feared hitter in the league. He's the all-star of all-stars. When he gets inducted to the Hall of Fame, he will be in the elite room of the Hall of Fame. There's the Hall of Fame, and there's the separate room of the Hall of Fame, and that's where Mike Trout goes. Mookie Betts is great. Mike Trout is a three-time MVP. By the way, Mike Trout's not even 30 years old. Three-time MVP. Finished runner-up to the MVP four times. He's been an all-star every year that he's played a full season in his career. He's been rookie of the year. Seven-time silver slugger. He's got a lifetime on-base plus slugging percentage 
of a thousand. Okay, or one, they say, but you know, he's got a lifetime slugging percentage of one. That's insane. He's done it for his whole career. We're talking nearly a decade. He's led the league in OPS for the last six years. He, you're talking about an on-base percentage of like 450 for Mike Trapp. People do not want to face him because he is that good. Mookie Betts is great, but Mike Trout is better. You talk about Sabre metrics and analytics and all that. The wins above replacement stat. Most wins above replacement for a player through their age 28 season. Mike Trout, third all-time. Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, the only people ahead of him. He's ahead of Mickey Mantle. Okay, Mookie Betts isn't on the list. Mookie Betts is great. Mike Trout is better. Freddie Coleman of ESPN, who was on with us earlier, he agreed. I don't think there's any doubt that Mike Trout is the best player in Major League Baseball playing for the Angels and that Mookie Betts is clearly the second best player in Major League Baseball. And I clearly understand that because we've seen Mookie Betts be able to shine on the national stage not once but twice where he was able to help the Red Sox win the World Championship and he did the same thing to Los Angeles Dodgers not even 24 hours ago. So I get the whole being in the moment Brady situation where you say oh, that makes the best player in baseball. People don't realize how great Mike Trout is. Not good, but how great he is. You have to understand that you should stop holding Mike Trout's organizational failures against him. He has done everything he can in spite of the organization to be the best player in baseball and to become an elite Hall of Famer. He will be your Hall of Famer's favorite player. Mike Trout is that good. Do not undersell him just because he didn't see it in October, you haven't seen it yet. Betts gets a lot of credit just because he's been great on the big stage. He deserves it, but Mike Trout deserves your recognition too. He's the best player in baseball. Brady Farkas Show brought to you by the all-new Preston's Kia in Montpelier, home of lifetime oil changes and state inspections. Preston's Kia is family-owned and operated, and they will do whatever it takes to earn and keep your business. Dinner Jazz is coming up next. The full show podcast available at WDEVradio.com, where you can subscribe on your favorite podcast player at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or whatever else you want to find it on. We'll be back tomorrow, everybody. Again, Dinner Jazz is next. You've been listening to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. See you tomorrow.